Hi, fellow geochemists and geochemistry enthusiasts. Welcome to Geochemist Tea, the only podcast for people who love geochemistry with a side of tea. Our mission is to inspire and to shed light on the topics not fancy enough to talk about at conference, but important to delve into. I'm your host, Sam Schur, and this week we're talking with Tom Musilar about the geochemical modeling of water-rock interactions. If you have not done any geochemical modeling recently, or ever, please check out the Alpers and Nordstrom 1997 book chapter entitled Geochemical Modeling of Water-Rock Interactions in Mining Environments. And this you can find posted on the Geochemistry website for a crash course. Tom Uslar is the founder at Lifecycle Geo, which provides innovative solutions to the mining and oil and gas sectors across the project's life cycle, providing a range of traditional geology and geochemistry-focused consulting solutions, particularly specializing in the use of predictive and analytics to help clients optimize their operations. Tom, welcome to Geochemistry. Thanks, Sam. It's a real pleasure to be here. When I was first introduced to Tom, it was as having someone on the show focus on environmental geochemistry. But after looking at your profiles and talking with you, I see that your list of interests is quite a bit more extensive than this. Could you talk to our listeners about the evolution of your career and also the breadth of industries that you've been involved in? Sure, I would love to. So I started out a long time ago. The whole separate geologic era, probably in my education was originally focused on economic geology. That was probably my first love. And I had very much hoped to go out and work in exploration. And in the mid nineties, which is when I came out with a master's gold was at $400 an ounce and headed to $200 an ounce, which is almost, yeah, kind of Whoa. Uh, hard to think about now that it's a little bit higher. Yeah. Add a thousand dollars to that. <laughs> yeah, add a thousand easy. And then I remember going to Reno looking for jobs and I was almost laughed out the out the door because they were laying people off who had 20 years experience or more. And that was my first lesson in market timing. So I bounced around a bit. My first, I'd say, really stable job was to actually work at a software company. And that's where I learned how to become a geochemical modeler. I was there for about 12 years. I taught workshops all over the world. I helped people build geochemical models and did a lot of technical support, learned about sales and business development. And then I tired of doing that and I became really intrigued by consulting and I wanted to try what I call cradle to grave consulting. And so I joined a large consulting firm. This is back in 2011 and was there for about seven years, learned the ins and outs of consulting at the same time got a PhD and started a family. I don't advise this. I survived. <laughs> so now I feel like I can do anything. My work at the consulting company was really focused. There was a lot of geochemical modeling involved. And towards the end of it, when I finished my PhD, I also became really interested in machine learning and data sciences, which is really just another type of modeling. It's a more data-driven form of modeling. And so I realized there was a pretty significant opportunity and I started my own firm that was in 2019. Now we're at almost 10 people. We're about to bring our 10th person on board. And so I've worked on projects in all areas of mining, some exploration, not as much, a lot of permitting, a lot of operations support, some closure work, but I've also done a fair bit of work in oil and gas. I've worked in geothermal, I've worked in power. I've worked with radio, radioactive waste disposal. I've worked in classic remediation. I've just always had a fascination with how water and rock interact, and that's broadly applicable to a number of different sectors. So I've had a really actually fun career, a broad and diverse career. I feel really grateful to be able to have worked on all the different projects that I've worked on. That's really interesting. and. I think, particularly with my next point coming up, I've had some people reach out to me that are interested in a lot of what you do in terms of environmental and permitting. And a lot of their questions are, in order to work in this sector, do I need to get a PhD? Do I need to do this? What are my steps? So that said, are there any tips or advice that you can give our listeners that want to break into geochemistry, environmental geochemistry, or any of the other sectors that you worked in? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I have lots of thoughts on this and I have the opportunity regularly to talk to students and young professionals who reach out and want to understand what does it look like to work in this field. And I always share my perspectives from the areas that I've worked in. And I think that's probably the first thing that I would encourage is that everybody work work on building your network and have conversations with people and ask them what it's like. What are the pros and cons of working in consulting? Consulting can be super fast paced at, at times. I've heard people say it's like doing a master's degree every month. And some people love that. They thrive in that. Other people are like, ah, I don't want that. And so there's a variety of different directions that you can take. And I think that the sooner that you have those conversations, the more that will inform your decision-making. When I decided to get a PhD, which was really mid-career for me, it was pretty funny because I was going to school with people who were at least 10 years younger than me. I felt kind of like the dad. I was a dad and, you know, it was, but it was a really great experience because I had worked in industry and I knew what I wanted to learn. I knew what some of the problems were. I was lucky enough to have an advisor who was extremely flexible. And the school, Wells Colorado School of Mines, they had wanted me to take a certain curriculum. And he basically said, no, nah, he's taking all these classes. Here's what he wants to learn. And we designed custom curriculum, but it was really driven by what I felt like my professional gaps were. I took a class in fossil fuels geochemistry. I learned geomicrobiology. I learned some statistics and some data science. And that really helped drive my career forward. And it was a little bit also, you know, when I decided to leave with a master's, the kind of the messaging I'd gotten, and this was some time ago and things have changed maybe a little bit, but you know, the master's is really the working degree. And I remember my parents saying to me, well, if you leave now, you'll never go back to school. And so going back and getting a PhD was partly to get back in them and prove them wrong. But it was also partly because I finally realized the type of work that I was doing and the expertise that it required it was actually helpful to have a PhD. So for instance, the last few weeks, I just got a chance to do my first expert witness work. Really helps to have a PhD for something like that. A lot of the machine learning work that we do, I think having a PhD helps there, but it's not required necessarily. It really depends on where you want to go and what you want to do. So I wouldn't necessarily recommend it for, for all people, but definitely start having those conversations. Find those people that you can network with and ask them what it's like to work in their careers and what they would advise. Yeah, because I can say to one of people that will reach out, that will ask me these, do I have to immediately get a PhD? And, and for me, I mean, I only have a master's and that was more driven because I was interested in pursuing more academic stuff right after graduating, realizing that that wasn't quite for me and then getting into the workforce. But I think it's more seen, even though it's very hard to do, it's more seen as a, a safer course of action to be insulated from the real world until you absolutely can't continue to do more schooling. But to your point, I think for me, it's really important that people are getting, even if it's not the job that they necessarily want, people that are getting experience working in an industry, being in mining, being in exploration is way more important before they start a PhD, even if they only do a year or two. But it's just... You don't have the right questions because you don't actually know our industry at all. Without those right questions, you don't know exactly what it is that you want or how to pursue like all the, the way that you were able to tailor your coursework, right? Like I think that would be way more important than just doing something very general and then just doing a PhD that more so satisfies the researcher, the professor's questions than your own. To an extent, you're going to have to still satisfy what they're interested in but at least you're choosing them from a point of knowledge. No, I agree. But I also can't imagine doing a PhD with children and <laughs> working. So That's crazy. I had a whole year where, so I have, I have three kids and just about teenagers now, my two older boys and I have a little girl, but I had a whole year. The two boys are 17 months apart. And when the second one was born, I just started in consulting and it was tough, you know, like toddlers are just a lot of work. And I had a whole year where I got nothing done on my PhD. And I remember I used to hide in the mines library when I got really busy with consulting work. And I remember I was in there once and my advisor walked in and I turned like beet red and wanted to hide like behind the bookshelves. But <laughs> he saw me and, and, I, and I was like profusely apologetic. I'm like, I'm sorry. And he's, no, 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 I believe in you. 
you're going to get this done. You're a professional student. This was a different arrangement. And I mean, he was just a fantastic advisor. He was very, very encouraging. And I guess that would be my other piece of advice is pick your, your advisors very carefully if you have that kind of flexibility, because having a really good one really can make for a great experience. And I have to say, I actually had a really great PhD experience. That's awesome. So there you have it, everybody. I think that's some of the best advice and some of the best tips that we've gotten so far. To those that have written to me asking, should they just immediately do a PhD? Here's some good perspectives, I think, on it. All right. So thanks for such a great introduction. And now it's tea time. So let's see if your tea is good and spill. I was born in Europe, so tea is important to me. I don't know how <laughs> good this tea is, but I think it's an interesting tidbit about the consulting industry in general. When I started this consulting job for seven years, this was a large firm, large international firm that has actually since been bought up and doesn't exist anymore. But I remember uh, when I started, we had three floors and there were people in cubicles on every floor and they used to print out these maps so that you knew where to find people to work with them. And when people left, I would X their names out because they were no longer in that cubicle. And even though they updated the maps over the years, for some reason I got so busy, I never replaced the original map that they'd given me. And when I left after seven years, I looked at the X's on the map and it was over 75%. And this was for a company that when I had joined, part of the reason I joined is because there were people there that had been there for 30, 40 years. And I thought, wow, this does something really good about the company that they've been there for this long and made their whole career. And there's obviously some differences between the generations and how long people stay at jobs, but I was really surprised to see that it was that high. And I think that's since been confirmed. I now run a consulting company and it really is a turnstile. There's just, uh, there's a lot of movement of people, especially as commodities market ebb and flow. There's just a lot of repositioning. And I was surprised by how much that was. So that's my tea. That is really interesting. And I say that as listeners, I am embarking on my own similar journey, starting a consultancy and that I find really fascinating. So that's, I guess it doesn't mean that I'll be a bad boss if I lose 75%, right? <laughs> but if you think about it too, I think <clears throat> to talk a bit about our industry a little bit, I think the holy grail, especially for young people just starting out is that you want to be in a major mining company. That's how you know that you've made it. So I think consultancies at one point, that first level, act as that stepping block, that building block from which you can say, okay, I have two years experience doing, for example, geochemistry. Now I'm attractive to all the majors, the, some of the mid-tiers, and they can hire me in. And so I think that's pretty beautiful. It makes maybe our jobs a little bit harder because we're always training people and everything. But it's part of what we sign up for. But then, yeah, so maybe... And it, that's it becomes, one way to think of it. It becomes this really fantastic networking opportunity. I think mm. that was the other surprise because like you say, people often, they start in consulting and then maybe they jump to industry, but then maybe there's contraction or something in industry and then they go back to consulting or they go to regulatory. And so you've got people all over now that you used to work with and they're all doing different things and it becomes a really great, like, I think, the one thing I've learned is try to burn as few bridges as you possibly can because the people that you work with at every step in your career may get new opportunities that you were never expecting just simply because you've kept the relationship with them. Yeah, very true. I can definitely attest to that. All right. Well, you weren't sure about your tea, but let me tell you, that was some nice tea. 75% turnover. Good to know. Good to look forward to. <laughs> Moving on to the paper that you chose, which is called Geochemical Modeling of Water-Rock Interactions in Mining Environments by Alpers and Nordstrom. One thing that I really appreciated about this paper was all the examples that the authors provided when taking the readers through the different types of models that are used in environmental geochemistry and which could also be used in other theoretical geochemistry studies. For those that haven't yet read the Albers and Nordstrom paper, could you give a brief overview of the paper and explain why you think it's a great read for understanding the role for not just the environmental geochemists, but geochemists in general? Well, first of all, mad props, Sam, because you got through it. And it is <laughs> a considered, I think, a standard and a classic paper for 
aqueous geochemist, but there is some theory there and it is somewhat dense and it is, and I'll just preface it. I would say if anybody doesn't have, let's say an aqueous geochemistry background, I would recommend, especially the first couple of sections. What I really liked about this paper is it's a great overview of how aqueous geochemical models are used. And then also just a general approach to modeling and what a modeling philosophy should be. I've made some pretty big mistakes in terms of approach in my career with building models. And I think this is a great read to help you avoid some of those pitfalls. There's also a really good discussion about the types of models that you could potentially build. And then even though it's 1997, the list of computer applications and how they've evolved over time, a lot of that's actually still relevant. Some of those roots and early codes are still sort of what we use in industry today. So it's a really good I think seminal paper, there is some technical detail. If you're really interested, actually technically interested in this kind of work, this is a great paper for that as well, because it's a good dense summary of some of the background that you'll need to build models like this. I hadn't done any kind of modeling like this since my master's thesis. I went to McGill University at the time. It was very heavy on geochem and we had a lot of different courses that I think every course, even structural geology has some geochem component in it. And we did have some aqueous geochem courses, which I never took. So I was like, this looks too difficult. Maybe regretting now. That said, I did do a bit aqueous geochem in my paper, which anybody can read in economic geology as a little plug. But yeah, no, I agree. I think that's something that I really found as well. It was that even though I had only done a fraction of what this paper presented, it was written in such a way that it was very accessible. So anybody that has a geochem background, I would argue, could it read at least the introduction and modeling philosophy section? Because to that point, you're still taking in what the general idea is and what the objective is. And then Maybe you're not going to become an expert, but at least now you know some of the lingo. To start out, you went there already, but I just want everybody to know it's really important to highlight that we're not talking about 3D modeling. We're talking about geochemistry modeling, which is different. Could you talk about the types of models that you use while you're doing some of your work? Yeah, absolutely. And I have done some 3D modeling as well. And even this type of modeling could fit into 3D model. But in general, when we speak of geochemical models, which are different from chemical models, so chemical models would be focused just on, uh, let's say, chemical substances and how they behave. A geochemical model is for a much larger scale, a geologic scale, or it could be an industry scale. And I'll give some examples in a minute. But what that model is really or what a geochemical model is really doing. And I should specify aqueous geochemical model, just to be very specific, because there are other types of geochemical model. But really what we're modeling is the interaction of water. And that water could be surface water, groundwater, it could be a deep reservoir brine, it could be seawater. But the interaction of water with different types of rocks or soils, and typically in the presence of some type of gas, like the atmosphere, the model it's rooted in thermodynamics. And so it first calculates base state of the water. And then what you can do is you can react rock in water or you can react, react soil in water and watch the chemistry of both the water and the rock and soil change over time. And how is that used? Well, a great example is, let's say in mining, if a, an operator wants to open up a new pit somewhere. They're going to excavate a bunch of rock from the pit and that rock's going to end up in a waste pile. That waste pile will sit there and it will interact with rainwater and it will interact with air very often in perpetuity for as long as the mine operates and into closure. And if the operator wants to get a permit, a regulator is going to want to know, well, what does the water quality coming from this waste rock pile look like in 20 years? What does it look like after closure? If we have sulfides in the rock, which is pretty common for mine rock, because that's very often tied with sulfide mineralization, especially pyrite. If we have pyrite in our waste rock, that can oxidize. And so it can form acid rock drainage. And we want to be able to predict that ahead of time so that we can 
present a plan to a regulator to say how we're going to manage this. All of this is done with modeling and the models are, they're complicated. They're really large scale models that require some characterization data and some water data. And then you put them into a geochemical model like this and you forward predict essentially how this looks. Another example would be if you've got a groundwater plume and let's say we have some metals, let's say we've got some contamination coming from some type of facility, above ground facility, and we want to know how fast do those metals move through the groundwater system. Is there anything in the rock like clays or oxides that potentially attenuate those so they take those metals back out of the water? Or are they going to get to some type of Dow gradient compliance point, like maybe somebody's drinking well or some, something else that would present a risk? And so for that, we would build what's called a reactive transport model, which is mixing both the geochemistry parts, the reactive parts, and the groundwater flow parts. So yeah, that, those are two examples of the types of models that we would build. That's super interesting. I mean, I had built something for volcano, so a very different type of model. No, that's really interesting and it's so pertinent. What I find very interesting is that you take up something that's pretty abstract. You read it in a paper and you're like, okay, reactive transport forward model, like this is not making sense. But then between your explanation and also this paper, it's just so obvious now what they're used for. It's, okay, well, this is maybe still a very advanced concept, but actually it has very real world applications, which is what I think makes this read everybody, but also chatting with you very interesting because something that exploration of geochemistry, working in geomet, that's just something that we're not really working on. Yeah. When I, when I went to school, I learned a lot of exploration geochemistry. So I've got a, at least an academic or deposit model background <laughs> and understand all that. And I had no idea what somebody kept telling me about this product, the geochemist workbench, which is a product that I've yeah. worked with the most. And I was like, what is this thing? I don't know. And it, until I went to work with it, then all of a sudden the lights came on and I saw people using it in oil and gas. I saw people using it in geothermal, like in geothermal and oil and gas, they're often trying to predict if they're going to have minerals clogging up their wells, you know, like they're mm -hmm. going to precipitate out and we've got a well problem. So there's all sorts of, and in the radioactive waste industries, they're trying to understand if something, if I dispose of waste underground and groundwater gets into it, are these actinides going to start migrating and are they going to present a, a problem at any point in time? So there's lots of fun. I really love to operate in the world of water rock interaction. And there's a lot of technical detail and a lot of complication that makes these models really complex, but I think also a lot of fun. I agree with the fun, but maybe that's just me yeah. and you. <laughs> yeah, we're strangely wired that way. As you can. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, even when... You know, your first job out of school, maybe your soil sampling, but it's core logging. And I would just look at that and be like, oh, man, you got some magnetite. It's touching pirate. It's touching this or whatever. I'm like, OK, now I have the FO2 pH diagram in my head. And I'm like, oh, OK, well, this is what's happening. Oxidized residue. You're just going through this. And I'm just like, most people probably aren't thinking about this, but that's why we're weird. And that's why everybody needs a geochemist with them just to break that down. Or once I'm sharing that with somebody and they're like, how do you know? And I'm just like, did you not sit through an economic geology class or did we just have some teachers that were a little bit better than yours? <laughs> I think people sometimes have this vision of geochemists being like alchemists. They're like mad science, right. like tucked away in a basement somewhere trying to turn lead into gold. And really what we do, I think what we do is very practical and it's very unique. The geochemistry world is very small and we all, I think we all almost know each other. Which is what makes it cool when you find a friend in common that's, have you ever met and talked to Tom before? And I was like, no. And he's like, but you should. And I was like, yes, Juan Carlos. <laughs> Will do. <laughs> Juan's great. Yeah. So the next question I have for you is, one of the first things that Alpers and Nordstrom talk about in the paper is modeling philosophy, which... Who thinks about that kind of stuff in the realm of science anymore, philosophy? But I thought that was extremely interesting. And mostly because the authors are pointing out that no matter how good a model looks, a geochemical model is not the same as a chemical model. It's, and I quote here, not reality, nor is it reliable, correct, or valid representation of reality, end quote. So I have two and a half questions here. The first one and a half questions is, can you expand on the difference between a chemical model and a geochemical model? 
and what the authors mean by geochemical models not being reality or reliable? Yeah, I love this question. And it's, I think, in my view, maybe the most important, the second question is the most important question because I wish I'd asked myself that when I started. A chemical model is broader in scope. You take the geo out of it, so it may not be focused on geologic applications. It could be a chemist in a lab modeling molecules and how molecules are put together or how certain compounds behave. So the geo really just puts it into a geologic context. But the question about the usefulness of models, when I started to model, I got really excited, you know, because I'm a geek and I'm a geochemist and <laughs> I thought, oh, this is going to be great. And so my initial approach was somebody handed me a problem and they said, can you build a model? And my initial inclination was to put every single real world detail into the model. I was thinking, I'm going to make this so complicated. I'm going to be able to predict everything and it's going to have every little detail wrapped into it. And that was really the wrong approach. And I did that so many times before I realized that it really wasn't the point of a model. And that, that's actually taken a long time, I think, to learn that. But the main point of a model, it is an abstraction of reality. It's a simplification of reality. The biggest value that I get from a model now is trying to look at a system conceptually and ask very specific questions of that system. And you really only want to put into the model what you need to answer that question. And so whereas I used to build overly complex models, now my philosophy is much more build the simplest model that I can to answer that question. So don't do reactive transport, for instance, don't add groundwater flow if you can just do a simple geochemical model without flow. And what it allows you to do is once you have built that conceptual models, it, one, it forces you to really think about your system and how your system behaves. And it forces you to think about the client, the question that often your client wants you to solve. But it also allows you to start looking at what do I need to make this a better model? So it becomes a feedback loop to data collection. And also you start to be able to walk down the path of sensitivity and uncertainty. Like how good is this simple abstraction? Am I getting a wide range of answers or am I getting a very narrow answer no matter how I tweak my model? If I'm getting a wide range of answers, which is often the case, I probably need more data to narrow in the focus of this model to be able to answer my questions. And I think they say kind of the same thing in the paper. I wish I'd read it earlier in my career. They basically say, look, start, start simple, understand a model is not reality. It's just an abstraction of reality. And you're really using it to understand systems conceptually and to ask questions of those systems see exactly where you're going with that. And I think that leads into the second question here, which is that if these models aren't real, why do you guys even bother making them? And I think you've already answered that, but I think we just need to be more clear and more direct about this. Why are you guys even making these models if they're not real? How is that helping the operator, for instance? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that deserves a more clear answer for sure. I think there's the old adage, all models are wrong, but some are useful. And <laughs> I think that, that really applies. You can't expect to build a, an exact replica of a system. You rarely have the data to do that. You just simply don't. But that doesn't mean that they're not useful. For example, by analogy, I will talk about how our industry has shifted a little bit in its modeling approaches. So in the 90s, when environmental geochemistry and mining was first coming into, into its own, regulators started to realize that with open pits, often we have pit lakes. And so they asked modelers to start building models of pit lakes because they want to know, is this going to be acidic in the long term? Are we going to have water quality issues here? Like Butte Pit's a great example. Are we going to have wildlife, you know, birds landing on the lake and it's a hazard for them. And often these models are built before there's even a pit. So you're building it use, using like drill hold and characterization on drill hold data and some simple assumptions about atmosphere and rainfall and groundwater and water balance. And so in the old days, consultants would build these models and would come up with an answer like in the year 2043 of mining operation, the arsenic concentration will be 5.23 micrograms per liter. And it didn't take long before those operations were built and people measured the water quality afterwards. 
and that they were several orders of magnitude off. There's a number of studies that have shown that those models are often not very accurate, which speaks to your point. So the way that the industries evolved now, instead of saying arsenic will be five point something micrograms per liter, it'll be in the tens. That is a useful answer because it at least says, hey, it could be a problem or it could not be a problem. And if it lands in the range of it could be a problem, now what we're going to do is when the mine site goes into to operation, now we're going to focus specifically on that particular constituent, whereas the other constituents we might not focus on because the range was totally acceptable. And so it's a useful answer. It's not an exact replica of what the system will look like, and it drives further questioning and further work that will need to be done as the mine site matures and evolves. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. Agreed. I have a lot of thoughts on this one, but the combination of all the different players in here too, you have the constituents that are worried that often don't really have the knowledge to understand exactly what you mean by there's going to be this much arsenic. So the ability also for us as geochemists to communicate to the regulators that communicate to the lo local constituents exactly what they should be worried about to an extent. I think that's also just a nice kind of humanity type bridge that we're bringing to it. I know that everything also goes through companies as well. There's lots of gray areas in here, but I think our ability to try and now be more general about it and not give them some kind of wonky scientific answer, but to be like, okay, in the next 20 years, you can expect to, this to look like this or this to look like that. I think that's something really powerful that we could also give back to our communities as well. Yeah. And it's not to say that the models, that sometimes we don't have a, enough data to to make really accurate predictions. Like sometimes we do, but I think a lot of people need to understand, especially with some of these aqueous geochemistry models, like predicting the, the arsenic concentration in the year 2053 in a facility that hasn't even been built. That could almost be like trying to predict a hurricane in some part of the Caribbean. And I think this is where as a science community, we need to teach, especially the public about uncertainty and about, there are a lot of things that aren't yes or no, but there's ranges of degrees of confidence in what we're predicting. And the only way that we lower that range or refine that range is often by collecting more data and refining our models and basically working on a continuous improvement process rather than a one-time snapshot model that will just serve in all perpetuity as the answer for the project. That's really not how we should be operating as practitioners. Do you think it's important too for a standard for companies that they have to take, instead of just getting all this information from Drill Core, that they also have to take water samples, for instance, and have that as the before snapshot of this is what the mine looked like? Really, to an extent, if you're mining something, that area is completely polluted, naturally polluted. I think also the public can't wrap that around their head as well, that the, the water in this area already is naturally polluted. We as miners now are doing a much better job of preserving, of remediating areas such that they are not further polluted. But I think that's another piece that's really missing from here is that, number one, would it be better to require water quality samples to be drawn before we mine? And then two, what does it look like maybe to give education to people to have them understand that their precious town is already very polluted? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, you already have a mineralized ore body underneath, right? And the water is yeah. interacting. No, it's a great question. And the answer to the first question is yes. I think the industry is already shifting in that direction. Some of that is driven by regulation. There are certain jurisdictions where you have to, to, to define a baseline before you get started. We're working with several clients right now as a company on helping them define pre-operational baseline. I think most operators understand that. And if not, it's usually fairly easy to explain to them that it's really in their best interest to do that. Because if you already are operating from, let's say, a high sulfate baseline or a high selenium baseline, that's a whole different argument because what's happened in the past is that work wasn't done and then someone goes back and measures water quality and ooh high selenium high sulfate and they point the finger at the mine and in reality it was there to begin with and the mine really hasn't done anything but the only way you make that argument coherently is that you have to collect the data on the front end to make that demonstration and say look this is where we started and then it becomes a conversation with the regulatory agency and say all right can we 
do a site-specific baseline, for instance, because we have some of these issues. And there are a lot of operators that we've worked with that just wanting to be good stewards. What they'll do is they'll say, you know what, we want to not only make sure we're not making things worse, but we're actually going to make things better. We're going to work a little bit in our practices that we developed to improve even what was baseline beforehand. But you can't do it if you don't have that data from the get-go. Yeah. And one further story that kind of evolves out of this is I remember I was sitting in the back of a car in Peru with one of the guys that worked for whichever company owned Pebble in Alaska at the time. And the reason that they stepped out of that project was because the regulators wanted them to, after the mine was finished, closure and everything, part of the remediation plan, the closure remediation plan was that not only did they have to ensure that there was no change in the stream chemistry, because for anybody that doesn't know, Pebble is salmon's spawning grounds. They had to actually remediate the water such that it was in better quality than it had started at, and they had to do it in perpetuity. So in the end, it was just such a losing proposition because how do you even make the stream, quote, more healthy? Because it was naturally polluted. You know? Yeah. Yeah, you can't, I mean, there's only so much you can do, right? If there's a giant sulfide ore body underneath that has <laughs> developed over geologic time. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> There's, you've got to be really realistic in what you promise and what you say yes to. And that there are a lot of examples, unfortunately, of the requirements being unrealistic and very, very difficult to meet. Yeah. Moving on, after reading the section on data screening and ion plots in this paper, I couldn't help but think about a prior conversation that on geochemistry we had with Juan Carlos Adonias a bunch of episodes back about collecting multi-client geochemistry data from the beginning of a project. So basically when companies will then approach environmental geochemists to model the environmental impacts of their mine sites or well field, et cetera, do you find that they have already collected data and present the maybe incomplete data to you and expect miracles? Or do you only get involved from the beginning of a sampling program, even if the mine site is already, say, contaminated? Yeah, so both. I mean, we have some projects where there's a water quality footprint that goes back over 100 years, very old districts that opened a long time ago. And in those cases, the water quality record is always spotty. And sometimes you can work with it. Sometimes there's enough quantity that it makes up for some of the quality. There's enough there to do things like footprinting and some of the source work and making, helping clients with recommendations for, you know, their sampling programs moving forward and their monitoring programs moving forward. Sometimes there's enough there. Other times it's not great. Let's start with a baseline and it becomes a feedback loop. In other cases, we get to work with a client right from the get-go and we will say, hey, our general approach is cast a wide net at first. And so monitor and measure for more than you ordinarily would. And then over time, as we, let's say we get a good solid year baseline and we look at some of the seasonal variation, then we might say, look, we've been measuring thallium for a year and there's just, there's nothing here. And we've looked at the rock, there's no source. So then we remove that from the analyte list, but you can always go back later on in the record say, yeah, we looked at that. The cost of obtaining data has really come down over the last couple of decades. So it's much more feasible to collect large data sets and then you winnow them down as you work your way through the project. So then along the same route, because I think a lot of times we start from exploration, we're not thinking all the way to remediation, right? You're just looking to raise money for next year's campaign. But what's your recommendation that you give to companies about how they should collect this multi-client data from the beginning? And if they're doing that properly, what exactly... Is it that the environmental geochemist would need out of that data set, say? Yeah, so that's a really good question. It's an interesting question. There, there's certainly not a, a one size fits all. Typically for any, certainly on the water side, for any water quality analysis, if there's going to be any type of modeling, you have to get at least the major ions and the major bulk parameters. So you're always going to get calcium, magnesium, sodium, and uh, potassium, and, uh, and then your anions, typically bicarbonate, chloride, sulfate, you'll get pH, you'll get 
conductivity, typically some type of measurement of your redox state of your water. That that's a minimum, you know, bare minimum that you would need so that you could do any type of predictive modeling or forensic work. And then on top of that, you're often going to add trace metals then as needed. So if you've got a selenium issue, then you'll measure for selenium. You might even measure for selenium redox species. So selenium four and selenium six separately. If it's a an ARD plume, there's probably going to be a suite of metals that you're going to going to measure. But in some cases, it's really small, a small analyte list. And in other cases, it's really much larger. But typically, an old water quality, a lot of old water quality data, what will have happened is maybe there's info on the rock. And so there's nitrate in the water. And so you'll see a lot of old data where they just measure nitrate. And there's not a lot you can do with that. You can certainly look at nitrate, but you can't do a whole lot else without having at least this kind of minimum, um, you know, major ion chemistry. And that's how you also do your kind of water classification, your water typing, start to group waters in terms of origins and aquifer types and how it's been affected over time. I guess that kind of just sums up for the final question for these emerging environmental geochemists. In general, your recommendations as to whether they should accept incomplete data sets and really, if they accept something like, say, just a nitrate data set, how poor could their analyses turn out to be if they do something like that? Well, you you want to, the problem, and this is probably the same with legacy assay data, is that you don't always know how it was obtained and you don't always have access to the QA, QC that you need to validate whether the data itself is acceptable. There are probably some things you can, you know, in terms of spot checks and calculations. I'd say we rarely reject data. There's usually some value in even very old data. But what we do often do is we really try to help the client understand this is the value of the data that you collected, this is what we can, this is what this data is useful for, and this is what it's not useful for. And if we want to achieve this or answer this question, we probably need to go back and collect additional data. There are cases where if you've got, well, we've seen examples of data getting switched or data getting improperly recorded or improperly measured, and it's just super noisy. And then there are some cases where you just reject it outright. But you do, you can't get around the step of really having to do cross your T's and dot your I's and making sure you understand as much as you possibly can about that data and how it was collected and how it was measured. Heard. <laughs> so I'm sure you met, yeah, yeah, well familiar. Exactly. Different medium, but the same. Yep. So reading through all the considerations and calculations that are required for the different types of geochemical modeling, I can't help but think that all the tailings that we have in the world and how poorly some of these are being monitored and managed. So, for example, some of the big disasters that we had in Brazil at WHO and Mariana Dems in 2019 and 2015. Do you know what the recourse is? or has been for catastrophic dam failures into waterways? And do you have any other recommendations for them potentially? Just some high level observations. I've worked worked on one such project. It was some time ago and it was more kind of a forensic after the event, you know, how widespread was it? It was that type of analysis. But I think the main thing I would say is that the Number one focus of the mining industry is to reduce the collapses of tailing storage facilities. And it, it is more a geotech issue than it is an environmental issue initially, at least the failure part is. But my understanding is that they're, oh, what's the word? They're kind of, they're, they move in opposite directions. And what I mean by that is I think that the industry is shifting towards using less water entailing storage facilities because that results in greater geotechnical stability. So more dry stack. The On the environmental side, we've always used water to manage environmental risks. So for example, we will use water covers to keep rock inundated and to reduce ARD risk. And the main reason that works is because it's much harder to transfer oxygen through water than it is through air. 
and you need to, you need to trans, I mean, you need a lot of oxygen for ARD to one, initiate and to be sustained. And so with this shift from using less water, what I suspect we'll see is we'll see more stable facilities geotechnically, but we're going to have to manage around the environmental risk. Like I think there's going to be more ramifications for how we manage those facilities from an environmental perspective. And I think that's okay because I think we have really come a long ways in the last 30 years since the sort of ARD has been established and since a lot of those, a lot of the theory has been developed and a lot of the mitigation and prevention techniques have also been tested. We have a lot more tools in the tool belt, but I do think it's going to shift the focus a little bit more to environmental risk. That's interesting. And then finish out the show, I wanted to say that I definitely have a new appreciation for the environmental geochemistry industry and the combination that you guys have of theoretical and practical that you straddle in order to answer these both simple but also very complex questions. That said, there's a few things I'm wondering. First, how do you present the findings of your studies to clients? It's such a complex topic and oftentimes people are just looking for a very simple answer. I love this question. I love it. And I hate it. Dude, there's nothing that I feel like I work harder at than this. And that's because I realized when I come out of school, when I came out of school, that I'd learned a lot or thought I'd learned a lot. And I started to build models and I really wanted to impress everybody with my modeling skills and my modeling capabilities. Look at this. I built this full-blown reactive transport model. And I've used kinetics and advanced sorption and wow, it's like widgets after widget after widget. And I think it's taken me a long time to learn, especially in consulting, that the clients don't really care about what I think. I mean, they do want to know that they're working with technically qualified people, but they really, they really want you to help them solve their problems. And solving their problems means not only communicating it to them, but it means communicating it to their managers. It means communicating it to regulators. It means communicating it to the public. And I've just seen so many times in my career where I've put technical content up and just watched the glazed look in the audience and realize I'd missed my opportunity. I just wasn't connecting with them, wasn't helping them understand the value, wasn't helping them understand the objective. And that's something I work at really, really hard because I think I've gotten it wrong more often than I've gotten it right. And the greatest compliment I can get is when somebody with a non-technical background comes up to me and says, hey, I don't know anything about geochemistry, but I just understood everything you said. And I really connect with it and I understand what the problem is and how you're going about solving it. I think if I can accomplish that, it's a great success. It's the same thing with machine learning and data science. We have had to work over and over and over at retelling our story because people hear the word machine learning. They want to run in the other direction really far and really fast. And learning how to communicate to people of various backgrounds, I think is an art. And it's one that really needs to be developed. And I would encourage all the listeners to work on that earlier rather than later. It is really fun to learn technical skills and to become really good at your craft, but it gets lost if you can't communicate it. And working at that communication takes a lot of effort as well. And I think it's really, really important. Yeah, I can agree with you more on this point. I know that I tried to introduce some people at PDEC to friends of mine that have their own machine learning, data science, a consultancy, and these guys are doing incredible work that has huge applications to our industry in many different ways. And I've seen them and they do it in such a, an elegantly simple way. That said, I just, there are some people that were, maybe they were just, they had gotten hurt before, I would say. But I said, oh, you guys, if you want to talk to my friends over here, they own this company and they hear machine learning, they shut down because it's almost like they're just disgusted by it. And it's just, it has to do with the, first of all, giving deliverables, that makes sense. But the communication of it is so important. And without that, do you never want people to cringe from certain things? Because that's just, it's not called for, but it's. Yeah, I, I think I hear that. some of the, you know, the feeling burnt by prior experiences is because the failure rate 
in machine learning is really, really high for machine learning projects. I think people who work in that space need to be very honest and open about that. I think we try really hard to develop simple proof concepts and small demonstrations of value before we do large projects. And it was the same with geochemical modeling, especially reactive transport. When reactive transport models came out first and we were combining groundwater flow and geochemistry, were a lot of fancy models built that really ultimately didn't deliver value. And they took mm. a lot of effort, a lot of resources, and clients felt burnt by that because they're like, what did I pay money for here? And so I think practitioners have had to work very hard at let's not build more model than is needed here. Let's really continue to focus on giving the client an answer and only using a model where a model is needed. It's unfortunate there's not always been a great track record with those things. And so the rest of us have to put up with the Yeah, work a bit harder. Yeah. Yeah. And then my second question here is just how do your models that you create today compare to when you first started and how important was and is mentorship for it? Oh, mentorship is, sorry, I jumped right to the second question. It's, it's you question. know, honestly, it's a complete <laughs> feedback question. So you could do it, it any is. way that you want. Yeah, I mean, the models are different. You know, I think probably as, as I mentioned earlier, I think my models have become simpler over yeah. time. And that was just from having, I think, two models that were too complicated. I think I spend more time now on the conceptual model development stage than I would have in the past. I think that in the past, I would have been wanted to jump into modeling very quickly. And I think I spend more time developing a conceptual model community. You know, most, a lot of the projects that we scope now, there's a separate conceptual model development stage because we want feedback from our clients or whoever we're working with and say, Hey, do we have this conceptual model correctly? And are we really answering the question that you need answered here? And we may have our own input there as well. We also think you need to answer this question and be thinking about that. But all of that should be done at the conceptual stage before a model is built. So I would add that the mentoring, I mean, I am a big, big believer in mentoring. I think I've benefited from great mentors in my career. I think I personally know I learn much faster from people than I do from books. And I learn from people's mistakes as well as their successes. And I am not. I try not to be shy about sharing my own mistakes. And if you can save somebody a year of going in the wrong direction, I think that's a really helpful thing to provide somebody. And so our, our firm is also, we're very big on mentorship and helping people develop professionally. I think it's not okay to just throw somebody in the corner and say, build a model. Good luck. I'll see you in two weeks. Mm -hmm. you know, I really think you've got to provide the guidance so that they can get that done. Again, heard. <laughs> yeah, I can't agree more. I also have been very fortunate in my career to have had numerous mentors and it has been everything for me. Yeah. Yeah. That said, I want to thank everybody for listening to Geochemistry and a big thanks to Tom for stopping by the show, dishing some unexpected but some really good tea. And giving us a really great introduction and also deep dive into the world of geochemical modeling and really something that I haven't thought about since submitting my master's. And I personally feel enriched from today. I want to thank our sponsor, LKI Consulting, and to It's Water and Coma Media for our music. And if you want to learn more about the show or submit a request to be on the show or recommend somebody for me to chase up, please go to our website at geochemistry.com. I'm looking forward to chatting with you all next month. And that's a wrap, guys. Thanks, Sam.